muscle building just putting the mic on. Jim. <laughs> so Ajahn Chah talked about two kinds of peace. Um, he talked about the, the peace of uh, samadhi and the peace of wisdom that comes from wisdom. And the peace of samadhi is the karam of samadhi that's uh, very central to the cultivation of the path, this path activity that we're doing. Um, it's not the easiest part of the path. One great Thai forest master, Ajahn Li, made the analogy of the path a bit like a bridge going across a fast-flowing river. And the pillar on each side, into the banks of each side of that river, are fairly easy to set down um, and sink into the ground because there's earth there. Um, So the pillar on the near side representing the cultivation of the ground of the path of ethics, sila. Um, the pillar on the far part, far uh, bank of the, of the river representing uh, wisdom, insight, liberating insight. But the pillar in the middle that goes down through the, the river is a hard pillar to sink. I imagine if you're an engineer... And he said, in the same way, that pillar is like the cultivation of samadhi. You're, put, you're, you're sinking a pillar through the currents of the mind. And that's, uh, you know, when you, 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 you sort of sink a pillar, the pillar stays still, but then you start to see how, far, how the fast the currents flow, how the, 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 the river flows so fast, the river of the mind. So this isn't an easy cultivation, but it's a very necessary cultivation. It's a very patient cultivation of this returning again and again, using the foundations of mindfulness, particularly the first foundation, second foundation. It's very tangible gathering around body feeling sensation and breath that helps that sense of steadying and, and, and um, bringing, you know, that, that just sort of steadying and bringing attention to a focal point begins to allow the mind to gather around that focal point. And just in and of itself, that practice, there's some stilling, there's some clarification. You start to see that river flowing and the currents of the mind. Um, And as that deepens, there can be um, a real stabilization to some degree. I mean, it's always going to be um, subject to change. You can't really ultimately control the flow of the mind or the, the, the context that you're doing that practice in, there's always going to be some disturbance with samadhi practice. But nevertheless, there's, there's definitely the sense of gathering. And even if you feel, man, I haven't even got one breath down, you know, like you go into a retreat and you feel like I, you know, everyone else looks like they're calm and stable and still and I'm all over the place. Um, actually, there's a lot more samadhi happening than you give credit for. Um, you'd notice that if you drove into the middle of Boston uh, right now, you probably really feel that actually <laughs> things are moving pretty fast. And I do feel a bit sort of, a bit. I went, um, this is a confession. 
I had this sort of uh, craving for something sweet the other day. Um, it's an old thing. Um, <laughs> I grew up in, in England on the sweet shop, you know, on the corner of when we walked to, to school and back. There was this, in those days we had pennies. And um, we'd all go in and sort of get uh, candy twists of one sort or another. Anyway, that's a habit that's been a little hard to drop. So I went into Barry to just have a look to see if there's a sweet shop, I guess, <laughs> in my slightly hazy, deluded state that I was in at that moment, which you can't do, but I could do. And um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but you can't do it. Um, so it, it wasn't a huge amount of fun, I have to confess. Anyhow... I kind of was in this sweet shop and I couldn't find anything that I could actually eat, that I wanted to eat. Um, and I was in there for a really long time, just spaced, and I just got really spaced out. I was just sort of looking at the shelf and wandering up and down. And, and the lady at the counter, in the end, she just kind of, her head started, <laughs> and she just gave me this stare and I, and I realized I'm being really weird. You know, and I just then I thought, I'm a meditator. That's why she's probably used to this, you know, strange meditators wandering in the shop and sort of hovering over a packet of biscuits for about 10 minutes, you know. Anyway, it made me realize that, I, that something's happening. So, you know, if you, if you went into the city right now, you would know that, there, <laughs> that you would have, you'd probably feel the loss of that samadhi. You, you'd feel that. You'd feel that there's, you know, something here just sitting in this space. There's a, there's a deepening and a grounding and a stilling um, that starts to happen. Um, being removed from distraction and having a taste even sometimes of the pleasure of that gathered mind, the, the sort of sweetness of it, how it actually is more sweet than sweets. That it's, it's, the Buddha said it's more sweet than the, what the, the, the pleasure of the senses. You know, it's a very delicious taste. Um, and it can deepen into um, you know, profound sense of um, subtle. The senses become very subtle. Um, the hearing, you hear the subtle sound. And the, um, Sometimes in sight, with eyes closed, there can be nimitous, subtle signs, light or image. or uh, It can be uh, it's more rare to have subtle taste, subtle smell, but I have heard people have had that. And the thinking becomes very lucid. It's not the sort of distracted, clunky, um, irritating thoughts. It can become very creative, lucid, intuitive. Intuition can, can heighten, as we call the super mundane knowledges can appear in samadhi. Um, you know, just the knowing, knowing, the knowing things that we don't usually know um, from that intuitive place. But that, that can all be disturbed, that can all be lost, that can all be interrupted. So then what Ajahn Chah said, it's really important to develop the peace that comes from wisdom. Um, through seeing, through the willingness to allow disturbance to arise and not to see it as a disturbance but as an opportunity to contemplate what is happening here and what am I creating around, what is the mind creating around what is happening here um, and how, the ten- how there's the tendency in that 
relationship to what appears to generate the experience. We were talking about this morning what Ajahn Chah pointed to over and over again is how there's this generation of dukkha, of struggle, from a very subtle place to sometimes a very coarse experience, a very profound experience of unsatisfactoriness, of despair, of, of, of uh, dislocation, of, of loss, of longing, these kinds of feelings that can come up. So the, the peace of, that arises through wisdom is the peace of the liberated heart, the heart that is in touch with the world but is not shaped by what is arising, not shaped by the experience of self or what's emerging, but is able to touch that, know that, and not be identified, not move into that particular shape or mood, or mind state, to know it, and to, to know it clearly, not to repress or deny, but to, to see and to know it through the eye of wisdom, through the eye of Dhamma Vijaya, which means to investigate the Dhamma, the Dhammas that we experience. Dhammas, it means like thing, actually, the things, the thingness of the moment, the thingness, the, the, the stuff of phenomena. Uh, of what, where the mind is, the thoughts, the feelings. So, and one can know that without that push and pull around the what's arising. <clears throat> and in those moments of release from the identification, perhaps tasting, having a taste, the jitta knowing its own heart, a taste of a moment of space, of liberation, of, of freedom from dukkha. And so this, this is a, the practice that we're doing, as the Buddha taught, wasn't just to stay in a very deep, calm place, which can be quite fragile, but to use that calm, to use that steadiness, and to bring that attention supported by samadhi, so it has some strength to be able to contemplate the phenomena of our experience, and particularly around this territory of, of dukkha. And also to see anicca, to see the changeability. And more subtly, to see how the sense of self becomes shaped. What, where do we move into? Where do we, so to speak, take birth? What shapes, what forms, what memories, what perceptions, what mind states, what feelings... Um, that come through and come and visit, that do we find ourselves becoming? And what is that once we've moved into that shape? Can we even then investigate what's happening here? What's the feeling? What's the, the mental phenomena? What's the narrative? So this is an investigative aspect of the path. And when that starts to come into play, it, um, it doesn't matter so much if there's so-called disturbance because it can become the ground then for our contemplation and our wisdom. 
And also our compassion, which you know, to to bring compassion to what what is internally and externally, not just seeing it as a bother. <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. In some ways, you know, the the avijja of the mind, the mind not really seeing what's here now, you know, not, not the knowing, not uh, knowing deeply just how it is and being shaped, moving into that, that avijja sankara is the, you know, sort of, in a way, it's the sort of primary engine of what generates this experience of dukkha. Is that sort of volitional movement, subtle movement to be shaped by. It's like the mind doesn't know its own nature as formless doesn't know, it doesn't recognize, awareness doesn't recognize its own nature as groundless, formless, undifferentiated. And so there's this feeling, you know, I've got to find myself in a form. (laughs) So I've got to to move into some some shape, you know, and that's a very ancient movement, this avijja, Pachiya Sankara, this first link that we chanted this morning of the dependent origination, this very ancient movement. Something moves to take birth, something seeking to, you know, somewhere to land, this home. We seek a home. I was saying to, when we were talking in some of the um, interviews this morning, and someone was talking about this longing to go home. And we, that's probably arisen perhaps for all of us. And, you know, it's like, I'd like to go home now, please. <laughs> it's enough. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I want to hear about the Four Noble Truths again. <laughs> and I was saying to them that um, that used to, that's so strong. Like, that, that, when I was in a monastic training in particular, particularly at dusk, I would just feel this really unbearable feeling of longing um, to go somewhere different, <laughs> home, something. And uh, I, was, I was telling them that one morning we'd go on arms round, and um, mostly um, that was in our local village and local towns. And there was this, the village near the monastery is one of these very quaint, old-fashioned, a bit like Downton Abbey type of village that sort of used to to win the, you know, the... West Sussex gardeners, um, perfect gardens of, you know, of the whole county every year, year in and year out. You know, everyone had the manicured gardens and these sort of old cottages and latticed windows. And it was very picture book. And I'd feel this feeling, you know, and I, I remember one day there was this, there's this little cottage and it was winter. And in my mind, it was cold and raining and probably wasn't it was probably a sunny summer day but in my mind it was cold and raining and I was sort of feeling very lonely and isolated and in the cottage window there's a sort of little fire and a a table laid out with tea and (laughs) you know my mind scones I don't know what it was but anyway and I just sort of peered through this window like sort of Goldilocks almost like and had such a deep longing to sit at that table. <laughs> and 
And I just I really contemplate that, that something unnameable that's looking for a home, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's very ancient for us. It's avicca, pachya, sankara. And we're sort of settled for any old thing, you know, really. Any old, you know, we're, we're quite, you know, the, the mind is, I think as Ajahn Sajita said, knows, knows no shame. <laughs> it will sort of, you know, huckster up to any old um, mind state rather than just be with an underlying formlessness, actually, of reality. You know, so this, 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 this movement. Um, but what we find as we move... As, as that sort of seeking, um, the volition, that movement, and then towards sankara, to patterning um, that is arising, um, what we find is in that moment, even if it's a very subtle, there's appearing this experience of dukkha. You know, often the dukkha can be very coarse. You know, things like... As it says in this, I'm sure I'm repeating so many things you already know, but I, I forget millions of times. So, it, as it says in the sutta, dukkha dukkha, <laughs> which means just dukkha dukkha. You know, there's just some pain that you're not, even if you're enlightened, you're still going to feel it. You're still going to get a bad back. You're still going to age. You know, there's the sorrow, there's a sorrow of loss. There's these dukkha dukkha. And then the dukkha viparinama, which means the, 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 the anguish of just subtle sense of impermanence, the fading of the beautiful. There are those sorts of dukkhas, but the dukkha sankara, the dukkha that's generated from this ignorance and not seeing reality, not really knowing this teaching to liberate, but also not really knowing the formless nature of consciousness, of mind and keep trying to find a shape. You know, there's this anguish, this subtle anguish as we move into that thought form, move into that memory, into that perception. We can feel that, that, that's, that separative consciousness. It has a sense of that, that subtle anguish in it. You know, and it just is not going to really fulfill. Um, and that's really good to know because when, when, when there's the knowing of that, and this is the practice, that, that attention that we've given to the breath, the attention that we've given to cultivating samadhi, we turn the strength of that attention just to knowing that experience of dukkha. You know, usually we go, uh, you know, usually we don't do that. We Usually we do everything we can to move away because it's just not very pleasant to sit with dukkha, to feel it. We either distract, we put the mind somewhere else, or we we, we repress it, we project it out because of someone, something, doing something. And there is a place for that, obviously, that people do do stuff, (laughs) and it can be very painful, but it's that, what do we do in that moment around the impact of what's done you know or we get lost in it you know suffering like no one suffers as much as me (laughs) it's like a virtue almost (laughs) I'm I'm a big sufferer (laughs) Um, 
which is also a, an unskillful state of mind. Um, so we have these different moves that we make, but to bring the strength that we've been cultivating of samadhi to know directly this is dukkha. This is the first noble truth, isn't it? It is the encouragement to turn to that experience directly, to know dukkha is dukkha, to just feel that as it's arising. Particularly as the felt sense, in the felt sense. And to be able to tolerate that and to breathe with that and hold attention there because actually while ignorance or not knowing gives rise to dukkha, dukkha gives rise to liberation ultimately. Because it can then start to um, stimulate inquiry. There's no awakening really without... um, the prodding of of being asleep, dukkha. Dukkha is an awakening sort of agent, you know, both personally and collectively. Well, it has that potential. We don't necessarily awaken with dukkha unless we know how to work with it. We can just go around cycling. That's what samsara is. We just cycle in it, distract, move somewhere else. So it takes a lot to contain contain us to be willing to actually meet this teaching. It's it's not easy. It takes some capacity. Um, It takes being pointed to um, because often we'll say something wrong with me and we internalize it. I'm I'm, I'm a hopeless meditator because I'm experiencing a hindrance that's arisen. Or I don't really want to be here. or, Or I feel useless. Or all of these shapes and thoughts and forms of dukkha that is that arise. So in the Buddha's night of awakening, when he sat under the Bodhi tree, as it's said, in sort of archetypal journey, a journey as an archetype, he was faced with all of these forces. You know, the longing, I'm sure, to go back somewhere to his um, home, his people, um, you know, being prodded by, you've got these duties to do. You know, what are you doing just sitting here? I guess that's come up. <laughs> you know, or you're useless, or, you know, you, you could go for this instead. You could build a sort of a, a meditation empire. <laughs> um, a big project, which, you know, might be a good thing to do. Um, but, you know, if we think that that's going to you know, actually, I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's a lot of dukkha, but anyway, um, you know, that's the, the way the mind, oh, this is going to be a great project. And then, you know, a few years down, you know, what was I thinking, you know? <laughs> you know, all the bills coming in and all the conflicts and all the... But, you know, so it was all of this array of temptation and push and pull and, you know, all of these currents of the mind that river of the mind that we've been with, you know. And the Buddha could have, you know, got out his AK-47, just going, I'm just going to blast this off the planet, you know, just go away. And we can have that feeling, perhaps not so dramatically or so aggressively, but we can have that aversion that comes up. 
when there's disturbance. This is not right, go away. But to, to actually, as you know, Buddha, the skill, the power, just like um, his response was just, I know you, I know this. I know this inside out. You cannot sway me. You cannot seduce me. You cannot trip me up. You cannot, um, I cannot, you know, I am no longer moving down these pathways. I know them so well. So a, a lot of our practice is that we're getting to know these currents of the mind. In this shape, in that shape, in doubt, in fear, in aversion, in longing, in sadness, in hope, in grief, and judgment, and in comparison, and all these different moods and inflections of those currents of the stream of consciousness. So that there's something about the, the stopping in that, which is what is so hard for us to do, to just, to just stop, is what in some ways we're just trying to do here. I mean, it's like quite Zen, you know, you know what's the Zen teaching? You will just stop. It's like when um, the Buddha was trying to stop Angulimala um, taking another life, his hundredth life, that of his mother, you know the story. He'd gone wild with, uh, just crazy. Actually, originally he was a very, very bright person. And because he had so much resentment, he felt he'd been tricked and felt very uh, huge sense of revenge. he just driven him mad. And the Buddha realized that he had this potential even still. And that's extraordinary in and of itself. You know, mostly we would give up on such a person. Some would have taken 99 lives and was about to take the life of his mother. So he went after him in the forest to stop him. And so Angli Mala sees the Buddha and he starts running. He's very athletic, starts running. You know, you know it's going to take him down. And the Buddha's just walking mindfully and he can't catch up. Angli Mala can't catch up. He's running, running, running. And he screams, stop! And the Buddha turns around and he says, I have stopped. Angirmala, when will you stop? I have stopped. It's like kind of first Zen teaching. We're, we're trying to stop. You can feel the train of momentum. It's like a train. It just... The momentum of the, the, the creations of the mind. The volition, the force, it's hard to stop. But we stop for a very particular reason. I mean, he stopped and turned around a lot. He actually awoke, he had an awakening. I mean, still had, there was still karmic force that he had to deal with, you know, it still wasn't. 
He wasn't out of the woods on that score. But in his heart, in his mind, he was free. Even someone that had that enormous amount of karmic momentum that he had created negative. So this stopping, it doesn't mean to say there's still not going to be the wheel of mind and the stuff that's arising, thoughts, the feelings. When I first, my first very primitive understanding of Dharma, I just thought everything had to stop, literally. (laughs) The thoughts had to stop. um, Everything I was feeling had to stop. And I, I was sort of, I would get very, very upset by people and situations that would disturb me and disturb my peace. I remember even after that very first somewhat failed meditation retreat, um, when I went back to my student quarter, uh, actually it wasn't really a student quarter, it was just a bunch of us living in this commune, um, and I set up my meditation cushion, and I was sitting, and I was like really excited, I'm going to try this at home now, and then this ice cream van came outside, and it's like, and next thing I'm like running out and telling this guy, would he kind of like, because he's disturbing my meditation. And he looked at me like I'm nuts. And of course I was. And, and I sat back down again and something in my mind went, I'm sure I haven't quite got this right. <laughs> There's some piece I'm missing here. This doesn't, and it wasn't really until I, I met the, you know, Ajahn Chah and the profundity of his wisdom and the profundity of how he would actually move out to disturb you um, <laughs> that I realized what he was actually teaching wasn't a method so much, but he was teaching samaditi, he was teaching right view, how to actually understand how to be in relationship to everything not just in retreat, but the flow of life, and how to meet everything back at the source, at the mind itself. Whatever it is, it's workable once we understand that premise. A demon or an angel, it's... uh, I mean, I would prefer the angels, but, you know, we do get the demons. um, They come... And I know you, but I know this. The knowing, meeting, the emergence of the patterning with this quality of knowing. It's knowing, stopping, breathing, bringing that attention, that strength of samadhi. So as Ajahn Chah said, it's like it's the samatha and the vipassana, it's like a knife. The knife, the, 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 the vipassana is like the blade that it can cut through and, and really see and investigate and look into what's happening here. But you have to have a back of the knife, the strength, which is the sam, samadhi. You know, just some, or he said it's like a candle. So, you know, the summit is like building a candle. But there's no good building a massive candle. You've got to at some point get a ladder and you build this big candle go up and light it, you know, so that you can illuminate what's happening. This is the, the insight to see, to look at, to explore, 
to not be frightened of the hindrances or the disturbances or what comes to meet us. Not think something's going wrong. No, something's going right, actually. This is what we want to see. It's not just peace, 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 calm, 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 calm. And then you walk out and get blown away, you know, by the first person that looks at you a bit funny. So it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, and if we don't, but if we don't have any candle and we're trying to light and look at something, we don't really have that containment and strength. We just keep getting blown around by the vagaries of the mind. One moment feeling this, one moment reacting there. So, so this, this in tandem, or like is mentioned like two great ox and working together to pull the card, card of awakening. This gathering, so then on the night of the, the Buddha's awakening, Kittisara talked the other night about his journey of before that, really, the liberating insight that he brought forth as a, as a teaching. At first, in through the frame of the four truths, and then all of the other teachings that emerged from this awakened mind. Before that night of awakening, he was really developing very deep states of jhana. Um, you know, had a great facility for that. But then he realized it, it wasn't really liberating the heart. It was like, perhaps, I don't know whether he thought this, but Ajahn Chah said it's a bit like having a stone and you put it on the grass. You'd be peaceful for a while if the conditions are right, in a peaceful center. But then if you knock that stone away, the grass grows, the, the hindrances still come, the right triggers, and they come. Um, so, you know, the Buddha understood that there needs to be an inquiry What's happening here? So, and at the, at the heart of his inquiry, on the night of his awakening, after he tried the deep peace and the deep jhanas, and then he tried to crush the body, feeling that maybe form was the problem, could just sort of catapult into some extraordinary elevated space. I used to think that's what we were doing as well. I had all these really strange ideas when I first ordained I had this idea, I was going to give a kuti, a shed, a, a, like a little hut in the forest, and I would just sort of float nicely on this cloud above it all, <laughs> forever. You know, and one day the body would drop away and I would sort of join the cosmos in this great love fest, you know. I probably smoked too much dope, that's probably the problem. I was just like... <laughs> but that was a, that was a sort of vague idea that I had, you know. But when I actually joined the monastery, it was a complete and utter freaking workout. I, I couldn't stand anyone. The, the work days were, were terrible. It was freezing. The food was, was, was not there. <laughs> the sleep was minimal. And um, I had a complete and utter meltdown after after a while, and, you know, with absolutely no peace. And I, I was very worried what I'd signed up for. <laughs> but I couldn't really get out. I, you know, I just couldn't quite get out. And then um, one day I had this 
really big meltdown over something completely insignificant. Um, One of the other nuns had let the fire go out of our little cottage and on a freezing cold night, and I'd made it so nicely, and they hadn't put the wood in, and that was the only heat that we had for everything. And, the, you know, we, it was very simple. And I, this this enormous, I mean, I had so much heat and so much rage, I could have, you know, heated the whole planet, actually, at that moment. Because um, it was, so, and, and I had enough mindfulness, fortunately. I'd heard enough teachers say, just know the dukkha. <laughs> you know, because e- either I'm going to commit a murder at this point, which I've taken the first precept, or I'm going to storm out in a, in a half, or I'm going to curl up and weep. You know, so, you know, at that moment, I just had, no, I realized I had no choice, really, um, but to meet what I was experiencing, the undigested hindrances of the mind. In, in their very raw form. So Ajahn Chah would used to say, when you can't go up and you can't go down, you can't move in any any way, and you and you meet and there's dukkha, that's when the practice really begins, or a certain kind of practice really starts to happen. And so you know, as I sat there with that energy, and then you know, I just started to contemplate it and just be with it and then and then feel it in the heart because it was very physical as well just feeling it breathing with that breathing with that and it started to alchemically um, transmute so that the chemistry of the the energy mixed with awareness started to shift and soften so that you know accepting and allowing dukkha it can have this potential to really, when we meet it in the right way, when we receive it as a, as a teacher, you know, we really want to meet the master. Well, guess what? The master's appearing all the time. <laughs> no, not that one. <laughs> the one that's going to tap me on the head with a peacock feather and say, oh, you made it, you know, <laughs> well done. <laughs> mm. But, you know, the master's coming all the time. And we go, no, I don't like the shape of that one. (laughs) Bring me another one. But, you know, so, but, you know, just to to be and to receive and experience, this is how it is. What's arising, this is the teacher. The, The unsatisfactoriness of life. We all know it, you know, and I think that's the brilliance of the doorway that the Buddha offered. So on the night of his awakening, he was contemplating deeply, he realized it, the form wasn't the problem. You know, being embodied wasn't the problem. Life wasn't the problem. It was the tendency to create this, the creation of the self. Not the the heart, the mind, not understanding its own nature, its own already liberated nature. Not being able to withstand the depth and the power of that unformed peace, timeless reality that's always shining through in every moment. 
there's a tendency to constrict around a pattern and say, this is me. This is who I am. It's a very ancient, old, we've been doing it a long time. And so when he saw through that, really saw through that, and he exclaimed, you know, he saw, he, that night he sat under the Bodhi tree, he saw how many times he'd done that, become some one or after another, you know, many, many lifetimes, on and on and on, this shape, this shape, this culture, this food, this situation, driven by this, uh, you know, I need to find the home. There is a place. There is a perfect place. Somehow, somewhere, somehow. (laughs) 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 It's so many songs about it. It's so poignant. It's so poignant. We sort of do dramas and songs and we've been doing great stories for eons. It's all very Shakespearean. You know, so that he was able to 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 really um, not only see that in his own stream of consciousness, but beings doing that. That's what we're all doing. He saw all beings doing that. This shape, this form, driven onwards, ever driven onwards by this momentum of unconscious movement of the avijja, not seeing, not knowing of the mind. And then forever experiencing this taste of dukkha, of one form, one degree of another, and the endlessness of it, the endlessness of that. And so he was this stopping, there was a great determination, like, I've had enough, like Ajahn Chah, when that first, one of the first times when he looked at us all, have you had enough? Buomai, have you had enough? And I thought, yes, but it wasn't exactly really true. <laughs> because I'm a slow learner. You know, we keep going to taste, and taste the fruit. So in the, the Buddha, finally, the something cracked open. Something shifted very profoundly. And as he said, that many a birth have I wandered through these realms of existence. Seeking but not finding the builder of this house, this momentum. Who's doing all of this? Who is the creator? Who is the one creating? Sorrowful is this repeated becoming and birth, this repeated movement. You shall find no house no more. There will be no house no more. I have broken All the rafters have been broken. The rich pole is shattered. My mind has attained the deathless and achieved the end of all craving. This was the great utterance of the Buddha's awakening of that night under the Bodhi tree, relinquishing that thirsting and that craving for experience, for the next thing, for being shaped by that patterning of old stories for the thirst of becoming for the longing for a place
So in the moments, you know, in this practice of gathering, of reflecting, of being with whatever's arising and being able to contemplate that and to know that, being freeing ourselves from I want this and I don't want that, the wanting and the not wanting of the mind, there can be moments of the release of actually being able to taste the heart itself, the awareness itself, the knowing itself that's not going anywhere, that's kind of like always here, <laughs> always illuminating the experience of now. What is illuminating the experience of now? If there's no awareness, we wouldn't actually be able to experience now. So we we give a lot of value to the content of our experience, but we don't really notice the light that's illuminating this experience, that's listening, that's receiving, that's aware, that's present. So moments of this inquiry, when these patterns come, we can just ask, who does this really belong to? Who is this voice? Who is this craving? It's that putting a spoke in the wheel, slowing that down, stopping, stopping, slowing, releasing, releasing, and learning to taste the underlying peace that's always here. It's like an acquired taste. You say, I really want to be peaceful, but mostly we don't. (laughs) Mostly we want to be entertained. We want some content. So in the space of this, especially here, in this very spacious place that we're in, this forest refuge, where this really, let's face it, there's not a lot of stuff going on here that we can absorb into. I mean, I know there is internally, but externally, you know, the, the simple... Rhythm of the days, the trees in autumn as the leaves fall, the moving around through the motions of the day. There can be this inquiry, what remains, what's present, what's knowing. And then when those patterns come up, to be able to, and the dukkha arises, to hold it carefully. It's not something going wrong. This is our doorway. This is what we want to be with. This is what we want to see. Supported by this samadhi, this strengthening of returning to the breath, taking one more breath, steadying, being present to. And then as that inquiry, there'll be moments when that, that dukkha collapses. There's not the investment, there's not the identification, there's not the push and pull. The irony is when we meet it, it starts to transform, transmute, dissolve, release. Sometimes it takes time. And then as Ajahn Mahabua, great Thai forest master, said, when dukkha stops, nothing remains. 
nothing, not to be frightened of that nothing, to welcome the nothing. When dukkha stops, nothing remains. All that remains is entirely pure awareness. It is the purity of the mind. If you want, you can call it Nibbana. When dukkha stops, nothing remains. All that remains is entirely pure awareness. It is the purity of the mind. If you want, you can call it Nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.